The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. I'm Estella Williams Chizik, and I am a professor of educational psychology in the School of Teacher Education. I teach educational psychology to future teachers as well as masters and doctoral students. Next semester, I will be stepping into my new position as liberal studies coordinator. Additionally, I will be co-directing the new Center for Achieving Black Wellness and Anti-Racist Education with my friend and co-host, Sesson Nagash. Hello, I am Sesta Nagash, and I am an associate professor and director in the Marriage and Family Therapy Program in the Counseling and School Site Department. I work to help prepare graduate students to serve individuals, couples, and families in therapy using systemic perspectives with a special emphasis in culturally responsive practices. As Stella mentioned, I am the new co-director for the Center for Achieving Black Wellness and Anti-Racist Education, which launches in spring 2021. Hi, Sasson. Hi, Stella. Sasson, we are faced with two pandemics that have fundamentally transformed how we teach all levels of education, be it pre-kindergarten to postgraduate education. One of the two pandemics is, of course, COVID-19. The second is the pervasive and seemingly enduring effects of systemic racism. Both of these pandemics have asked us to rethink how we do education. Today's podcast focuses primarily on the issue of racism in education. Specifically, I invited some of our colleagues from various disciplines and backgrounds to talk about anti-racist teaching and how we do it in our courses, no matter what the subject or discipline is. Yes, we are very happy to have with us three faculty from across the university. Please share with us who you are, what department and college you are from, and the courses you teach. Thanks, Stella and Sesson, for having us today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm Daniel Reinholtz. I'm an assistant professor in the math and stats department at SDSU, um, and I'm a mathematics educator um, and also a professor of equity, um, providing professional development to faculty on, and staff on our campus. Um, and the courses I teach are very broad, from working with new teachers to teaching undergraduate students in just math classes and also working with our doctoral students in math education. Uh, my name is Michael Dominguez. I'm an assistant professor in the Chicana Chicano Studies Department. Um, I'm also the Augustine Gus Chavez um, faculty scholar for the Latinx Resource Center. Um, I teach classes in youth studies and education and culturally sustaining pedagogy um, in and related to Latinos and, and other uh, historically marginalized populations. And I also teach about sports and race and, and sports and, and Latinx culture um, over in the Chicano and Chicano Studies Department. Hello, I'm Regina Brandon, uh, an associate professor in the Department of Special Education, where I currently coordinate um, the mild to, moder mild to moderate disabilities um, preliminary credential program. Um, I currently teach an assistive technology course 
also teach a course that's entitled Special Education in a Pluralistic Society. This course actually focuses on um, ensuring that pre-service teachers are prepared to go out and to address the unique needs of uh, students from cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds with disabilities. Thank you all for joining us today. So last spring, the senseless murder of George Floyd catapulted issues of race and racism into the forefront of American consciousness. I think many of us want to do something in our courses that attempts to address the issues of race and racism in meaningful ways and in authentic ways. As a result, there have been books written about anti-racist pedagogy. Before we talk about what we do in the classroom, I would like us or each guest to talk about what anti-racist pedagogy or teaching means to them. So when we talk about anti-racism um, as it re re relates to teaching, it's important that teachers are prepared to address the unique needs of all students. Um, I often say that it's, it's one thing to have access, but it's another thing to have equi equity in the classroom. Um, way too often we're seeing that students of color, especially students of color with disabilities, are not actually receiving a quality or equitable education. And we need to make sure that we are actually preparing all teachers to go out and address these needs. These are teachers that go into the classroom um, without biases and without um, racist ideology. Thank you. How about you, um, Dr. Reinholz? Yeah, um, so to me, I think anti-racist pedagogy means that we recognize the larger societal systems of oppression like racism, anti-blackness, patriarchy, and ableism. All of those are also operating in our classrooms. So unless we actively work to dismantle those systems, um, we just perpetuate them. And education doesn't actually serve as a tool for equity. Um, and I think the ways that it plays out in the classroom are actually very subtle from things like what expectations we have from our students, who we call on, what we ask them, if we build on student strengths rather than seeing deficits, what kind of curriculum we have, how we bring our own identities and relationship building. And so I think for me, foundational to doing anti-racist work is building trusting relationships with our students. And Dr. Dominguez? Yeah, thank you. And I, I think what Daniel said was, was really significant, that the subtlety of this, because right, anti-racist pedagogy is you know, for me, it's about ensuring that every aspect of, of what we do in the classroom, because that's what pedagogy is. It's, it's the doing of our, our teaching work, whether you're at the university or the K-12 level. Um, it's working to decolonize the ways that students sort of relate to knowledge, to they relate to one another, and they get to relate to our institutions and systems, right? Colonialism ended a long time ago, sort of, not really, um, but it ended a while ago, but coloniality, so those, those racist, classist, sexist, homophobic legacies, they've, they've lingered, right? That Eurocentrism has lingered. It's just found new ways, the subtle ways Daniel was just mentioning, like to show up. And so decolonization then is the process of working to undo all of that, to call out those sort of malignancies, those systemic biases, the oppressions, the ways that like the trauma of colonization or racism has like been woven in, into all of our lives and consciousnesses. Um, and then to, to take, make the, the active choice to be, to be anti-racist, to try to undo that, 
right? So anti-racist pedagogy is, is making that active choice to work at undoing all of that, not just in our individual thought, but in our relational lives and in the ways really that we, we sort of structure and approach everything we do in the, in the business of education. So I'm hearing that um, anti-racist pedagogy is all about, you know, addressing bias, um, inclusion, and Dr. Dominguez, you talked about decolonization of the curriculum. So I'm wondering, could you all speak to how do you bring in anti-racist pedagogy into your courses? What is it you talked about, Dr. Dominguez, and I'm gonna call on you first. What do you do? that is anti-racist? Sure. Um, so I'm going to start and I'll say that, you know, I, I'm in the position of, I teach in ethnic studies um, and Chicano, Chicano studies specifically. So, so everything I do content-wise essentially looks at race and ethnicity and sovereignty and um, all of the, these issues. Um, but the question for me then starts, right, with a bit of, if we reflect on what race and racism really are, right, like at their root, right? It's not just this prejudice just towards phenotype, right? Phenotype skin color became the stand-in as part of this colonial process for a signifier for culture, for ideology, for ontology, right? It's a system of ordering the world on multiple levels and layers. It punishes skin color as a way of punishing like cultural difference, ontological difference, the way we see and relate to another, the, to one another. Um, and so even when we get to be present, right, for folks of color, we often get to be present in a space and we're like, and we ostensibly are in public schools, in the university, um, in the classroom, but we still end up subject to covering demands, right? That it's it's fine for, for me to be here as a Latino, as a Chicano, but just don't speak Spanish, right? I can, I can be here, but just don't really show up in that way. Like these covering demands and this desire for us to conform to whiteness. And so we're in a position, um, Homi Baba says, right? That we're always the same, but not quite, always the same, but not white, right? And so where I'm going with this is that the thing I think that I do in my classroom that's, that's most, you know, all that I'm going to talk about multiple things, but um, the thing is, is that we need to shake up the ontological approach to relationality, right? It's not just the content, right? We, it's the practices, the practices of our classroom of learning differently that we need to do things. So, so in, in my classroom, right, when we do a reading, we don't just like read it and answer questions. We co-construct knowledge from it. We, we do cognitive mapping around it. We're up out of our seats um, or in breakout rooms in the virtual uh, COVID, post-COVID world, um, right, where it's, it's not about having the quickest, most encyclopedic response to a text that's not the only thing that's rewarded, but actually like connections, storytelling, these things that in black indigenous people of color communities matter as parts of our ontological ways of being, those get to matter in the classroom too. Um, we do collaborative problem solving and not in the sense of like group work, but in the sense of giving students the agency to learn together, to bring in the tools that reflect their home communities. Um, I encourage students to like make those connections and find those tools, modify things that are gonna make things work for them, right? So not just saying like, oh, this is the way things work, but um, actually teaching them that and then encouraging them to break the mold. Um, 
And, and I think then even exams work a little differently, uh, you know, and I give, I think the last thing is I'll give a lot of feedback. And I think honestly, that's the most anti-racist thing we can do is to stop structuring our classrooms intentionally or unintentionally as, as these purely summative spaces. If we're honestly committed to anti-racism, we need to be patient and we need to be developmental and formative in the way we're assessing our students, particularly our students of color, and in the way we just approach our pedagogy from the start. Um, uh, Dr. Reinholz, do you want to go next? How do sure. you implement anti-racist pedagogy in your course? Yeah, for, first of all, I'll just say I, I love everything that Dr. Dominguez shared. And actually, a number of years ago, I had the, the pleasure of sitting in a few of his classes as a student. So um, I, I definitely saw him as a wonderful teacher to really bring um, authentically that spirit of decolonization to the classroom. Um, in, in my own work, I, I just want to talk about one concrete thing that I think everybody can do. Um, and so for me, a lot of my pedagogy is influenced by my own research, which, which focuses on anti-racist teaching. Um, so I have a collaborator, Neeral Shah, and I, and so we've developed an observation protocol for just looking at racialized and gendered patterns in classroom participation. And so we've looked at hundreds of STEM classrooms and you know, kind of across the board, we can see the ways that they tend to be sort of this biased white masculine space. We see racism and sexism just kind of playing out on an everyday basis um, due to like problematic narratives, interpersonal microaggressions, things like that. And so on the whole, I, I think I recognize that for many students coming into a math classroom, that's a hostile environment from the start. That's not a safe place um, because experience has taught our students that it's not a safe place. Um, and so for me, it, it takes, I think, work from day one to try to address that, to try to shake things up and, and change that so we can kind of build a different relationship with a discipline. Um, part of that is, you know, making clear my own positionality. What does it mean for me as a white man to be leading in a math class? What are my own equity commitments? Um, and so I think when it comes to addressing those barriers in our own teaching practices, um, here's something that I see, you know, hundreds of teachers doing all the time. Very often we have a question that we want to ask the class and we just throw out a question and wait for students to shout out an answer. Um, but this can be really problematic um, because as white folks, white students, especially white men, we're socialized to take up space, to take up a disproportionate amount of space, um, even when we might not even know the right answer. Right. And so that can be extremely problematic in especially in a math class, but in a lot of places, um, recognizing that participation is fundamental um, to learning identity development, all of these core aspects of what we need. Um, and so my, in my own teaching, I would use, you know, very specific discourse moves to make sure that different voices are being heard, different voices can be heard in meaningful ways. Um, so I would never I would probably rarely ask a question just to everybody. But I might tell students, you know, I'm going to wait for five hands and maybe I can pick someone or give students a chance to work on their own um, in smaller groups. And then I can have a pre-conference, get some ideas elicited and say, when we come back, let's get those ideas to the whole class, because those are really meaningful and important for others to grapple with. And so that way there can be an intentionality in whose voices are shared rather than like defaulting to this white masculine mathematics and just perpetuating um, the inequities that we really need to kind of dismantle. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Brandon, I'm sure that you can add on because one of the things that really resonated with me with what 
Dr. Uh, Reinholz was talking about was this idea of inclusion and who speaks and who's not, who doesn't speak in the classroom. And as a special educator, um, uh, could you also address that and, and talk about the ways in which you um, include students in your classrooms? Yeah, um, yeah, that, that was very important. But I also think it's important um, to give students and all students the, um, the opportunity to be able to speak about the historical roots and the manifestations of social injustices and discriminations that take place in our schools and within society as a whole. One of my signature assignments in the course is that I um, required that students write a cultural heritage paper. So it actually gives them the, the opportunity to, the, to explore their own cultural heritage before we can actually start to deconstruct um, about society or the schooling process as, as a whole. Um, once students have, the, it's really a fascinating assignments because um, initially the majority of white students would say, well, I can't do this because I don't have a culture. Um, but once we have the opportunity to um, review those uh, cultural heritage papers, uh, students are able to speak. It gives them the opportunity to listen and to really understand what's taking place within societies when, as it relates to um, biases and racisms that exist. All students in this class are also required to complete the um, implicit association test. And they are required to do the uh, three tests, the one on race, the one on ability, disability, and then they get to choose one. Just giving them the opportunity to really have the um, foundation of what takes place with students when they are not giving an equitable education or having the opportunity to um, be a part of the schooling of the school system. Something else that's really important is that um, I also think because in this class um, or in our program, especially in the mild to moderate programs, it's been about five or six years since there's been an African-American student in the program. And so when we're having these conversations, it's really crucial that students understand that um, the, where I'm coming from as the instructor, as a black female in this position, actually trying to prepare them to go out and address the unique needs of students with disability, knowing that the majority of students who they will be responsible for educating are students of color and students from dual language background. In, in order for us to explore and understand someone else's background, I think it's important that we explore and understand where we are coming from. And a lot of times I think that's what goes missing. Thank you, Sesson. Thank you, Regina. Thank you all for your thoughtful responses. So let's be real for a moment. Talking about race and racism is challenging. It isn't easy. What makes talking about racism in our courses challenging? It is really difficult um, on how to communicate. What makes it difficult is knowing how to actually communicate about white privilege, about police violence, about economic inequalities and mass incarceration. When you're dealing with students who historically have not had to actually um, 
address or even think about these issues. That's what's so exciting about George Floyd was not the beginning, but it sparked such an outrage because the world was able to see this police officer put his knee on, uh, put his, knee on his throat um, as if with proudness. And so the world got to see that. So I think as a result of that, these conversations are becoming somewhat more open. People are understand we've been talking about white privilege. We've been talking about police violence and economic inequalities and mass incarceration for years, for decades, for a century. And so um, I'm glad that we're having this conversation and giving you know voice to what's taking place and what we're doing in our uh, classrooms. But I would like to tell you uh, also said that the conversation is difficult. Even as a black female, um, I'm finding my voice. And I think that has a lot to do with the students and where students are coming from. But initially, uh, this was a very, diff this was difficult to have these conversations, even though we knew that they existed. We see this happening in our communities. But um, it's great that we're at a point now where we can feel comfortable um, having these conversations. I was just reading an article where a professor um, at a school in Mississippi refused to take uh, grant money from an organization that he knew was a racist organization and he was fired. And so the great thing about being at a, in a place where we are is that we are able to find our voice, voice and we're actually able, and not everyone may agree with what we're saying, but at least I feel like we do have a voice and, um, and it's valued as it relates to racism and biases that exist on our college campuses and society as a whole. May I just jump in and follow up? Um, uh, Dr. Brandon, you talked about how it's challenging, um, but um, the climate is making it maybe not easier, but certainly people are more open to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you want to speak to a bit about um, how safe you feel as a professor um, and going up for promotion. How you know, balancing that idea of um, really doing this important work of challenging racism by being anti-racist, um, but recognizing that it's challenging and that it could be a threat to your promotion as a, as a professor. Well, initially, uh, when I was going from assistant to associate professor, I was more concerned at that point in time um, because even the class that I taught, I would get evaluations like uh, she's um, practicing this, um, reverse racism. So I would get this all the time on my evaluations. Um, at this point in time, I will tell you that um, going up for full professor is something I'm working towards and it's very important. But I think that it's also important that I stand up for what's taking place in society, at some point in time, um, you know, the professorship is, is very important, but at some point in time, and the reason that I'm here is to, to educate and to make sure that our, that our teachers are prepared to go out and educate. 
So if, if that means that I may not get full professor because of the work that I'm undertaking and my role in making sure that teachers are prepared to go out and to work with families, families, and we know that the majority of teachers are middle-class white females. And a lot of these teachers do not come from the same backgrounds or the same languages as the students in which they will be responsible for educating. And so it's, at some point in time, you know, that full professorship is very important, but not at the cost of this point, at this particular time in society, that we are able to have a voice. And, so it, 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 and as hard as it is, we do have a voice, and I think that's important. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> that, that does make a lot of sense, and thank you for sharing that. Um, Dr. Dominguez, what are your yeah, thoughts I think, on this? Yeah, um, I think, you know, for, for me, one, one place to start here is, is thinking about, you know, as, as Dr. Brandon said, right, like, we've been doing this for years, and, and now it's sort of come to the fore, and so in some ways, it's both... Um, we have this opening to talk about it, but it doesn't make it all that much easier because even though it's more present, we're still dealing with these sort of like legacies of, of trauma around race, right? The trauma of just talking about race that for, for those of us who have been racialized, have experienced in, in some ways, but, but even white folks have trauma just around the, like really bringing up race. And so for me, I think the biggest issue and challenge is um, is that we have classes in which our students are coming in at very different levels of understanding. Um, we're, when we're learning about systemic racism and like teaching about it, like what that needs to involve, it looks incredibly different for a student who's never considered the concept, who's maybe lived in very homogenous settings, um, who's had a very, what we would talk about as a normative upbringing, than for a student activist who's involved on campus and beyond in like advocacy on social justice issues. And we have both of those sometimes in the same classroom. And so... How do you make sure both of them get a generative and, and frankly loving like learning environment? Because we've got to approach that, both of those students, maybe that one who is, who is still exhibiting some of those forms of racism with, with revolutionary love that, that we believe in their potential to grow and, and be more humanizing in the world. And even that activist still has lots to learn and grow and to process. And so all of that requires differentiation and scaffolding and different approaches to sort of like get to those same understandings. And so for some folks, you know, we can launch right in and start talking about things, um, taking things apart, like trying to figure out how to decolonize the whole like relational system. Uh, like Dr. Brandon mentioned, maybe we start with a reflection on, on ourselves and some people are able to like launch right in and we've got to, but for others, we've got to go back and really like take very small steps, um, you know, and, and just as an example, for, for some of my students, I can't talk about white privilege right away, right? For them to be told that they have white privilege by a Chicano teacher ends up becoming like a triggering situation that's like tapping into some of that reactionary racial trauma that like white folks carry. Um, and so we've got to scaffold it. And so what I've, I've, I've found is that I've got to start by like having them look at like just the cultural normativity in which they grew up and then thinking about social power and then teasing out the patterns and then building that up so gradually till we can get to and understand that what white privilege is talking about is not an attack on them, but getting to this system. And so 
ultimately that takes a lot of time. It takes extra lessons. It takes extra student meetings. Um, and a lot of that, I think, often falls on faculty color to, to do that work. Um, and so for, for me, I think that's the most challenging thing is, is trying to both challenge our students who need to keep growing and keep pushing and catching everyone is that that broad scaffolding and the, the huge amount of differentiation we have to do around this issue. Dr. Reinholz, can you speak to how challenging it is to teach um, or to engage, bring in anti-racist pedagogy into your course? And also, if you could speak to it as a, as a, a you're the only white person, and I, I, I probably shouldn't have, um, uh, you know, maybe I'm I'm incorrect in that, but. Um, it, do you find how's your positionality in teaching um, anti-racist pedagogy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, so thanks for that question. I think um, you know people are often surprised when they find out that I'm a white person who's working on anti-racist scholarship um, and activist work. Um, but I think it's important just to to be very clear that as white folks, we are the primary beneficiaries of oppressive systems like white supremacy. And that also means that we should be playing the leading role in dismantling the systems. But like Dr. Domingo was saying, in reality, people of color are the ones disproportionately doing this labor. And so that's something that, that just needs to change. Um, I think, you know, what, one pitfall that I tend to find is like, um, you know, as white folks, we're actually just socialized not to see race. I was raised like colorblindness is a virtue. Um, everybody's the same. I treat everybody the same. Um, and so that ideology is is very problematic and very um, dangerous. But in a lot of ways, that's like what we learned was the right thing to do. And so I think there's a, a, a huge unlearning process that has to happen, um, especially for white folks to like understand that race literally plays out in every interaction, whether or not we recognize that um, or see that. And so I think that can be very hard for folks to wrap their head around. I think this idea of meritocracy, that, that we've sort of earned everything that we have, um, is, is very hard when, when people are challenged on that, which leads to defensiveness. Um, and I think just a couple other things. Um, so I think one thing also that comes up, you know, so in my role as an equity professor, we do a lot of um, workshops and other things with folks on campus, both staff and faculty. Um, and as white folks, we're socialized to take up a lot of space. And so it can be frustrating in sort of this anti-racist space. Then um, I think it's very easy for us to disproportionately like center ourselves in the work, which is kind of missing the point, um, rather than sort of listening to, learning from, and following the leadership of folks of color um, who, are, who are doing the work also. And then I think on the flip side, you know, when kind of injustices do happen, that microaggression, you know, in the faculty meeting or whatever it might be, we need to be the first ones to speak up loudly, but I, I think it often doesn't happen that way. Um, so for me, you know, it, it's all about taking those small steps and kind of meeting people where they are. And so a, a lot of my research and professional development work focuses on working with white, mostly white instructors, but not always, um, to understand racism and to understand like how this plays out in their classrooms. And so usually when I do this work, I'm working with folks of color. Um, it's important to kind of have different identities on our team so that we can see different things. 
And I, I would say really the unfortunate pattern is just seeing that time and again, it feels like white folks are just more willing to listen to other white people when it comes out to like be understanding, being called in around racial injustice. And so, well, I, I think that's problematic for a lot of reasons, but it also means that as white folks, like we have that responsibility to speak up, educate each other and, and actually do the real work for systemic change. Thank you. Um, Regina, you occupy the intersections of being a black and female professor. Your positionality could be a challenge and or a benefit, your ability to be anti-racist in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What are the advantages and or disadvantages of talking about race in your courses? Um, so there is an, first of all, um, I said there is an advantage to talking about racism in my classes. And then there is a disadvantage of talking about racism in my classes. Number one, I'm gonna start with the disadvantage. The disadvantage is students, especially once again, I um, has spoke earlier about the, or the students are in our program are not that diverse. I mean, we're in the process of trying to correct that now through some programs or a program on campus. But what ends up happening is that once again, and I spoke earlier about students writing in my uh, evaluation, um, she's practicing re reverse racism, okay? And it really isn't reverse racism. And it goes back um, to just really thinking about the students in the classroom and giving them the opportunity to understand that racism is serious. A lot of students do not want to admit that racism, because they've never had to think about it. But um, it's really difficult um, to have these conversations with students. The advantage is, is that when I'm coming, I'm coming from a place of realness. I'm coming from a place of personal experiences. I'm coming from a place of understanding what it's like to be a black woman, a black professor. And then you have to understand, and I often ask my students, how many of you have ever had a black teacher or a black professor. Many times, this is the first time that many of these students have had a black professor, especially a black woman professor. And so you, you have to get around a lot of these issues because I've had students say, well, here we go again. You know, is it ever going to change? And so my question is, I turned that question back on the students and is it ever going to change? Why is it that we're in the 21st century and we're still having courses on um, cultural uh, relevant pedagogy? Why is it that we're still having uh, a course as it relates to addressing the needs of diverse people within our public schools or even preparing you to address these needs? And so I just think um, once again, um, there are advantages to me being a black woman and the place that I'm coming from, but also there are disadvantages because, and I, and I think it was Daniel who said that often, um, at some point in time, people of color cannot be the only ones that's standing up and addressing these issues. Because what ends up happening is that the students will say, here we go again. Why are we still here? Why are we still taking these courses? Because they just do not understand that until 
structures or change within this country as it relates to race and racism and biases, we will continue to have to have these conversations. Um, and so, yes. Thank you. Um, and, you know, what we what I'm hearing is that um, there's something unique about who you are, Dr. Brandon, and who all of the guests are. But I'm sure there are a lot of people who are listening who would like to engage in this work. And so I'm wondering if each of you or any one of you could speak to what kind of tips, and I hate to say the word tips, but because I don't I don't know if this can be reduced to anti-racist pedagogy can be reduced to tips, but could you speak to, um, you know, how can you help people get started in doing the work that you're doing? What readings, what activities could they, that anybody start to do that would be anti-racist? And um, I'll call on Dr. Dominguez. Sure. So I think um, I'll start off just by saying, right, like you're kind of bringing, um, bringing it back to assessment, right? Um, remember that assessment, right? It's, it's not just like how we do it, but how we see it, right? Like take the time to be formative, to be developmental with our students, um, reflecting on that, the, the sort of tough love bootstraps logic we dwell in, that expectation of like, they should already know how to do it. Like they, they've got to just figure it out. Um, that's rooted in, in colonial construction. It perpetuates racism. And, and in, you know, like in our classrooms, when we expect working class students of color to like think and act and write like middle-class white ones, right? Like that's, that's never going to work. Um, and so teach the constituent skills, take the time, regardless of your discipline to like teach the writing, right? Teach those basic sort of gatekeeping things it helps everyone if we do that, right? So why wouldn't we um, allow folks to play with the form in that? And also ask ourselves, right, if what you're assessing is something that is a cultural practice, right? Because if we're assessing for whiteness, then our students of color are always gonna struggle and we're never gonna actually be doing anti-racism. And, and so we need to be formative. We need to be clear on the learning objectives. We need to be open to differently or so basically responses that are going to be shaped by different cultural perspectives and different ways to do things that we haven't thought of, right? That's the stuff that's going to be revolutionary and exciting and, and so powerful in the future, right? We got to be open to that. Why are we going to crush that at this stage um, with our kids? Um, and then, you know, I think beyond that question of assessment, the thing I would say is, you know, to just honestly, you know, we, we can't we can't do this work of sustaining our students, of being responsive or relevant to our students if we don't know what it is we're trying to sustain. So I would the the other tip I would have is is get out and get to know your students, get to know what their lives are like, right? Get to know what their lives on campus, beyond campus are like. If you were, you know, whatever university we're at, whatever school you're at. Um, what does the community around you look like? Do you live in the school community or like in the community around it? Do you, do you know what the, the lives of black indigenous people of color who support that institution are like? Are we spending time there and, and not spending time there as, as researchers necessarily, as sort of like institutional representatives, but like just in a relational sense, um, get to know the lived experiences of the folks of color and the communities of color in the area around you, 
we cannot sustain our students if we don't know what it is culturally that we're supposed to be sustaining. Dr. Reinholz. So I, I want to come back to something that Dr. Brandon mentioned a couple of times, and I think it's, um, you know, this idea for a lot of students, and especially white students, like maybe not seeing their culture or not seeing race or not seeing that identity. I think to me, especially speaking to white faculty, is the first step is recognizing our own identities and the way that plays out in our classroom. Um, and so I work, I'm a mathematician, I work primarily with STEM folks. And so especially kind of coming in that space um, as a white academic, like what, what does that mean and how do, like Dr. Dominguez is saying, in what ways do we kind of inadvertently perpetuate that whiteness through cultural practices? And in so what ways are we understanding and opening up and really getting to know our students? Um, so I just want to offer sort of a concrete example of, of what this could look like. Um, and I want to talk about curriculum. Um, so one of the courses I teach here in the math department is history of mathematics. And so if you take the stereotypical version of this course, it pretty much cements this idea that math is this white masculine discipline. Um, but we can, you know, drawing from ethnic studies and other perspectives, we can totally flip that around. We can think about roles of narratives, racial and gender bias. We can look at the ways that textbooks reify this construction of a mathematician. We can look at how sort of Columbusing happens and we rename things like the Pythagorean theorem and Pascal's triangle and Fibonacci sequence as things that white mathematicians discovered, even though like they were discovered many, many years earlier by mathematicians of color. And so in this way, I think um, we can sort of recognize that, that math, which is kind of isolated as the most non-human, ahistorical, decontextualized discipline that one can think of, is actually this very human endeavor in the way that we think about the humans who are engaged in that endeavor, like culture, race, gender identity, all of these things matter. And so then we can actually start to deconstruct like these false constructions that we have all through school mathematics. Um, and I, I really think this applies to pretty much anything in math, science, and engineering. These, these are things we do as humans. Um, and so when we bring that into the conversation, power, privilege, race, all of that can come forth. And, and I just want to say, like, I think it's so critical that happens, especially for STEM folks, because otherwise we're just using STEM to sort of further perpetuate racist policies like policing or college admissions or economic inequality or, you know, destroying the environment. Um, and so unless, like, as STEM faculty, we, we see ourselves as racialized beings, we see that we're sort of complicit in the future with, that we're building with our students, we just let ourselves off the hook. So, like, we all got to do this. There's so many things we can do. I think there's already a hundred kind of amazing concrete examples just on this podcast. And um, for, who, for folks who are willing to do the work, there's also a lot more out there. Dr. Brandon, do you want to offer some yeah, just the, tips or recommendations? Okay. I think what needs to take place, and I, I know you mentioned a book and reading books. I think that's important, but I don't, want individuals to confuse reading a book with actually putting in the work. And I just think that that is so important. And so I know there, I mean, if you start thinking about these anti-racism or white fragility and, and all of these books that are just like flying off the shelves now, people are reading them and thinking that that's enough. 
but it's important that everyone realize that reading a book is not enough. It's a start, but it's not enough. Something else that I have issues with is, and uh, um, both of my colleagues here have mentioned this, but I'm gonna use it in terms of stereotypes. These stereotypes pass our kids on from the time that they are born to they, once they enter elementary school, junior high school, high school, and into university levels, those that are fortunate enough to make it to that level, these stereotypes. And when professors walk into the classroom and they see a student that may not look like them, may not come from their background, their mind defaults to these stereotypes. This is what makes it so easy for the police to be able to do what they do to not just black men, but to black women and society feels that it's okay. Okay, it's because when you're looking at a person and you're not seeing them as your equal, you're not seeing them as a full human, it makes it easier to get away with some of the things that has happened to people of color in this country for centuries. I just think it's important that you, and someone mentioned about knowing the community. I mean, how many professors, and I know some, they come to work, they put in their teaching, their office hours, and then they leave. They don't know anything or tr try to familiarize themselves with what's actually taking place around San Diego. What are the students going through? Do you realize how many students on that campus have housing insecurities, have food insecurities, but it's just business as usual. And we expect these students to be able to come to class and perform as if they're going to go home to a roof over their head. And it's just not that simple. And so my recommendation would be to figure out what it takes to not just read a book, but to actually put in the work so that we can actually start dealing with some of these structural issues um, that has been a part of this country for centuries. Um, I know that, and I can, I'm a part of CFA, I'm a proud member, I sit on the e-board, we have workshops on campuses, usually it's the same individuals. We had a workshop of what does it take to be a professor at a Hispanic serving institution? The same people showed up. What happens if you have a, a, a student in crises in your classroom, what do you do? It's not necessarily to call campus police, but you need to know what your options are. Because so easy, especially if it's a student of color, because of these stereotypes, if it's a man, a black male or a, a Latinx male, but if it's a student of color, it's easier to pick up and call campus police than to really try to figure out what's going on. And all of this is institutionalized, it's been a part of our culture, it's been a part of our society for years. And if we're going to deconstruct, we have to start thinking about who the students are. And I also, you know, talk about the person in the mirror. Every once in a while, look in the mirror and look deep inside yourself to actually figure out what am I doing wrong and what can I do to be a part of the solution? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Brandon and Dr. Reinholdt and Dr. Dominguez for uh, your sharing your thoughts. I wish we had more time to really 
dig into this much deeper. Thank you so much for sharing with us the hard and important work you are doing to promote social justice and racial equity at San Diego State and beyond. Yes, I, I also want to thank the guests. I found um, listening to you very meaningful and have taken away some really important ideas. And I'm just glad to know that there are folks like you doing this work and the opportunity um, to share that work, I think, is really important because there are people who are eager and ready and wanting to help. And, and um, again, thank you for, for sharing some really, I think, meaningful information. Thank you, Sassen, for co-hosting this podcast with me. I always enjoy working with you. Thank you, Stella. I also enjoy working with you. Sharing a space with you is always fun. Finally, I want to thank our listeners. I hope our conversation challenged and inspired you to do more to engage in anti-racist work. From um, information or resources, please visit the following San Diego State websites. Um, for, for one, there's the Faculty Advancement and Student Success, um, Center for Teaching and Learning, and Center for Inclusive, uh, inclusive Excellence. And keep an eye out for resources available from our new center called CABWARE, the Center for Achieving Black Wellness and Anti-Racist Education. Mm -hmm.